This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Some of you, I'm sure, are aware and have heard uh, that President Trump uh, a few weeks ago on Fox News was talking about the fact that he turned down. Um, a uh, an opportunity to uh, fund the post office to provide the post office with funding it needs to stay alive. Um, and when asked, you know, why or or what was the implication, he said, "Well, it means that you can't have universal mail-in voting because they wouldn't be equipped to have it." So he very much openly kind of stated that part of the reason, or maybe the full reason, that he wanted to not fund the post office was to prevent mail-in voting from happening. Um, so very overt kind of statement about why he doesn't want the post office to be functional. Um, and that, you know, I, people, the conversation began about um, not only the fact that there's a kind of an attempt to quash democracy by, you know, you know not allowing the post office to function, but also this very long-standing effort to privatize the post office that started long before Trump, frankly, has been going on for over 50 years. So some quick background on the more recent kind of uh, events, and then we can go back a little bit in history. Um, So under Obama, the first woman ever in the history of the United States was appointed as U.S. Postmaster General. Her name was Megan Brennan. She was appointed in 2015. Um, In May of this year, when she was still the postmaster, she told Congress that the post office would run out of money if it didn't have additional funds. Um, And she requested $75 billion in additional assistance from Congress. And none was given. That was the money that Trump was proudly saying that he was going to turn down, refuse, veto, because that would you know, allow them to engage in mail-in voting, which he clearly doesn't want to happen. Um, Right now, as a result, the post office is barely surviving off of its remaining cash reserves and a $3 billion loan from the U.S. Treasury, which is currently putting it in further debt. And I just think it's really important in the context of this conversation to remember that while the post office is struggling, Um, Meanwhile, the privatized mail companies, Amazon and UPS, United Parcel Service, have recorded record revenue and are under the process of expanding their logistics networks. Um, Just one example of Amazon's growth has been the acquisition of 2,300 trucks, and UPS just announced a $138 million expansion of its Atlanta headquarters facility. So they're doing quite well while the post office is struggling. So you all know that um, very recently, um, Megan resigned uh, in, the, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of not getting the funding that she requested. And Louis DeJoy, President Trump appointed Louis DeJoy as Postmaster General. You may also know that Louis DeJoy is a North Carolina businessman and a major donor to Trump's political campaign. Um, and in July, DeJoy started eliminating overtime pay for postal workers, ordering them to end their shifts at a set time rather than when the mail is delivered, meaning you got to go home or you won't get overtime 
regardless of whether the mail gets delivered, which has led to delivery delays. Um, it's also happened that in recent weeks, USPS officials, United States Postal Service told state election officials that if they want to ensure speedy delivery of absentee ballots, they'll need to pay for them at a first class rate, which is roughly three times as expensive as the bulk rate that's typically used for ballots. So basically the post office under DeJoy's um, leadership is not only delaying mail, but also charging the government, uh, state governments much more if they want to have a timely election. So on July 10th, under DeJoy's leadership, an internal memo was circulated to all post office employees. I'm sorry if you can't read this very well, but this is the internal memo. It was called Pivoting for Our Future. Um, it prohibited overtime. It said more is to come. Um, it basically uh, talked about <laughs> essentially um, that they need to leave mail behind, that mail be, may be left behind on the workroom floor or in docks, and that's just the way it is. Um, and after this memo, news started to emerge of widespread mail slowdowns of all kinds of mail, first class marketing mail, parcel, parcels, Veterans Administration reported that uh, veterans were not getting their medications on time. And in the context of all of this, we've really heard the press, kind of the public discourse be really around two issues the real potential for a um, impact on our democracy and voting and this, these elections, but also uh, privatization. And as I said, it's important to understand that privatization of the post office, which directly impacts elections and voting, um, has been a long standing desire of many people in America long before Trump. How are these two things related? Well. On the one hand, the United States Postal Service has had the mission of serving everyone everywhere. Whether you're in a very remote place or in an urban area, you get your mail. That is not actually uh, very compatible with a privatized po post office that would prioritize efficiency over getting everyone their mail. So let's learn about the history of privatization. Um, I credit most of this lecture to, very quick lecture, brief lecture to Philip Rubio, um, who's a professor at, um, at, at North Carolina AT&T um, State University, but before being an academic, he actually was a postal worker. He was a mail carrier for 20 years, and he wrote this book that was mostly about the great postal strike of 1970 that I'm going to spend a few minutes on, but he does go into the history of the post office. And so the Constitution, post office was actually started before even the Declaration of Independence. The U.S. Postal Service started in 1775. Uh, of course, it was, it was written into the Constitution in 1787. Article 1, Section 8 says Congress shall have the power to establish post office and post roads. Now, you'll notice that it doesn't say that uh, it has, Congress has the exclusive authority or power, which leaves room for private actors to do mail as well. It simply gives Congress the right, the power to create a post office and have a post office and postal roads. Um, so uh, this kind of system of delivering the mail began right then, 1770s, 1790s. Um, but in 1802, the post office, uh, postmaster general declared that post office jobs would be for whites only, 
Uh, and that whites only rule for postal delivery workers was in place until the end of the Civil War, 1865. Um, and at that point, you know, after the Civil War and certainly in the 20th century, the post office became an important source of working class, middle class, unionized jobs for people of color. Um, and during this period, this, the 1800s, um, letter writing became more popular, rates dropped for letter writing, and the post office, you know, even it was passed in Congress that the post office became a function. I'll read to you the, the U.S. code that was, that was passed around this time. United States Postal Service shall have as its basic function the obligation to provide postal services to bind the nation together through the personal, educational, literary, and business correspondence of the people. It shall provide prompt, reliable, and efficient services to patrons in all areas and shall render postal services to all communities. So this, you know, congressional code, this law, you know, it was bipartisan agreement that the postal service was meant to serve everybody. But there was always a desire by certainly capitalists to privatize the, the post office. Um, and certainly under Lyndon B. Johnson in the, uh, you know, in the 60s, we saw that because of outdated machinery, lack of investments in the post office, there was an attempt to start a privatization conversation. So LBJ set up a presidential commission on the postal service that included a bunch of CEOs, all CEOs of businesses and one postal worker rep, one union rep. And the conclusion of course, of this mostly CEO driven commission was that the post office needs to be more businesslike. It needs to be more efficient, um, and this was the beginning of efforts to, to really privatize. And it was in everybody, I think at that point, there was a recognition that there is a contradiction between efficiency and that mission of serving everyone everywhere in all communities. Well, Nixon came along in 1969 and really pushed to set up the post office as a postal corporation. And he refused to give these workers raises, postal workers raises, unless he got it set up as, it, unless it was changed into a corporation. So, and at the time, these workers were making about $6,000 a year the most that they could make after 20 years of work was $8,400. And so in response to Nixon saying there will be no raises unless we turn the post office into a corporation, in response, workers went on strike. This was one of the largest strikes in the history of the United States of America. It was a wildcat strike. And I don't know if everybody knows what that means, but the po postal workers are actually not allowed legally to strike. That is part of their, the contract that the Postal Union agreed to. So in this case, workers went, went against their union leadership and against the president and said, we don't care, we're going on strike. That's a wildcat strike, meaning it's not authorized by union leadership, certainly not authorized by management, and management in this case being the federal government, being Nixon. They went on a wildcat strike. Uh, one of the greatest examples of withholding labor. And we're going to talk more later about what is a strike, what's the purpose of a strike. A strike is primarily to withhold labor to disrupt commerce or disrupt business as usual. This was one of the greatest examples of that. It only lasted eight days. But because of something that Nixon was really surprised by, which was the overwhelming public support for postal workers, he had to concede pretty quickly. And the postal workers despite having done it against their union leadership's uh, desires, got 
pretty much everything that they asked for. However, immediately following getting everything that they asked for in terms of raises and improved working conditions, and I just wanted to show that uh, it, it wasn't all white workers, it was definitely uh, a diverse group of workers striking. Um, they did get what they wanted. However, directly afterwards, Nixon got what he wanted and the post office became a corporation. So it's now a public corporation, uh, which means because of the attempt to have it function more like a corporation. Um, and, uh, and this also was the beginning, of course, of private companies starting to set up. So this strike happened in 1970 1971 is when FedEx was established. So directly after workers going on strike and demanding more better pay and greater, uh, better working conditions is when you started to see private corporations enter into the space uh, and a narrative that was starting to be pushed from the right that the post office is a monopoly, it's unfair, it's a dinosaur, we need to downsize uh, the postal service. Um, and frankly, even Megan Brennan uh, has been one of four postmaster generals in the last several decades that have continued to push that, that are, yes, more sympathetic towards workers, but have continued to push the idea of privatization. And this reached ahead in 2018 with President Trump being the most blatant. 2018, President Trump put forward an actual plan to fully privatize USPS, either through the launch of an IPO, initial public offering of the post office on the stock market, or selling the post office to an existing company. Most people didn't know about that. We're talking a lot about privatization by Trump now. Most people didn't know in 2018, he had already put forward a plan to fully privatize the post office. And what's at stake here? You're talking about 48%. The USPS controls 48% of the world's mail volume, which generates 71 billion annually in revenue. Uh, if it were fully privatized, it would be number 44 on the Fortune 500's list of the world's largest companies. So there's a lot of money at stake. There's a big desire by the Amazons and the FedExes and the UPSs. But I think it's important to, to understand the impact, of course, on our democracy, if there's no longer a mission to serve everyone everywhere all the time, there's also an impact on 637,000 workers because with privatization and decay of the post office, we've seen 20% of postal workers have gone to part-time low-wage jobs without benefits. And in the recent past few years, we've seen 44,000 workers injured at the post office and fired for their injuries. Um, I think the part that's important to remember and maintain hope about is that um, while there is this drive to privatize the post office uh, and this drive to stop mail <laughs> during an election, the fact that there was such overwhelming consumer public sympathy for postal workers in 1970 when they went on strike is really what shut the strike down, is really what led to Nixon having to end the strike by giving workers what they wanted. Nixon was surprised by the level of public sympathy. And so I think there is real hope right now. Uh, if there is this push to privatize, to delay the mail, to oppress postal workers, should postal workers do another wildcat strike or should consumers 
stage actions as they already have been supporting the post office, there is much more widespread public support for the post office than I think Trump or those that are in his universe that want to privatize the post office realize. There is a real danger for kind of a counter push against Trump and his cronies for trying to privatize the post office. And that's the hopeful note I want to end on that we all have the power to stop this from happening. Um, I did also just want to mention that uh, today is September 9th and yesterday and today um, a few scholars called for a scholar strike mim mimicking the NBA workers strike asking uh, professors across the country to either not hold class or hold class as a teach-in um, that is universally publicly available. And since our class is universally publicly available, and since our class is actually about, <laughs> in large part, racial inequity, we didn't feel like withholding our labor at this moment would actually help the cause of racial justice, which is what the strike is calling for, is to do things that will advance the cause of racial equity. So we felt that having the class today as a teach-in uh, in the face of the strike, especially given that it's publicly accessible online, was the right way to go. And so if we want to consider today's class as a teach-in, let's do that. Thanks, everybody. Yes, I second that wholeheartedly. Let me get my screen sharing going here. Um, yes, thank you for that, uh, that detailed and uh, compelling introduction. I mean, the, the role of the post office, you know, particularly during a pandemic, could not be more important. And I think that to just add to what Professor Jai Raman was saying, that the fact that mail-in ballots are going to be the predominant form of voting, particularly for people who are observing quarantine, who recognize the reality of the pandemic, um, that, that because the pandemic has been so politicized, so too have mail-in ballots and so too will mail-in ballots. So this is a story we need to very much keep uh, an eye on as we move uh, closer to election day itself. Now, I want to begin today um, with what I think of as, this is my chosen form of a trigger warning, such as it is. And it is a, a line that comes from W.B. Du Bois, who is the founder of American scientific sociology uh, and is the founder of the field of African-American studies. And in his masterpiece of 1903, Souls of Black Folk, he writes, for education among all kinds of men and women has always, excuse me, always has had and always will have an element of danger and revolution of dissatisfaction and discontent. And I put this up uh, by way of saying that in the course of this class, in the course of any considerable uh, investigation into the roots and origins of American racism, students such as yourselves are liable to learn things that they wish they didn't know. That this process is as much the, the one of education as it is of um, essentially um, correcting the errors, right, of unlearning as much as it is about learning. And so the sense that uh, the material that we present should indeed, if you, I think, are uh, cognizant and paying attention, should indeed leave you quite dissatisfied and discontent, that the possibility of acquiring new knowledge, of digging into the reality, going to the root, as we say, um, should leave one with um, an element of danger and revolution. And so today, I want to take this ethos uh, brought to you by Du Bois 
and bring it um, forward to think about, in particular, the question I want to ask today is, what's at stake in the U.S. Constitution and our political system? How democratic is it? And to the way to address that question, the way I want to address that question in solidarity with the scholar strike movement that is going on across the country is to ask the basic question about what role did slavery play in the foundations of this nation and its institutions. And so I want to take a bit of a walk to get there, but we will work our way through uh, to the U.S. Constitution uh, and beyond. So, right. Now, of course, as you all hopefully remember, in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis on Memorial Day, May 25th, 2020, the largest wave of public protest in U.S. history took to the streets. Somewhere between 18 to 25 million Americans in all 50 states and across more than 4,700 individual demonstrations protested in the defense of black life and against police violence. Now, at its peak, the date uh, which was calculated as June 6th, saw more than a half million people in more than 550 cities, towns, and suburbs across nearly every state protested the murders of George Floyd, Ahmed Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor. Now, the streets, as we know, have long memory. And on these days, the all-too-long list of citizens murdered by the police were called back, and names like Oscar Grant and Stephon Clark rang through the Bay Area alongside the names of Michael Brown uh, from Ferguson, of Freddie Gray from Baltimore, and of course, George Floyd from Minneapolis. Massive public demonstrations, especially the largely spontaneous events like the George Floyd protests, are always combinations of symbolic actions and immediate demands. They are a blend of policy advocacy and cultural effervescence. Riots and rebellions are not just emotional explosions on the streets. There is always an agenda. Yet when cities and municipalities blocked protesters' demands to hold police accountable, to defund hyper-militarized police departments, to limit police contact with Black people, to rethink the meaning of public safety, and to arrest the police who murdered Breonna Taylor as she slept in her bed, these cities turned instead to symbolic actions. On June 5th, the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, commissioned the painting of Black Lives Matter on the streets directly north of the White House in letters 35 feet tall. This gesture was immediately lauded and imitated across the country. And there's one on 15th Street in downtown Oakland if you care to ride your bicycle across it. Yet these protests persisted, revealing the deep roots of anti-blackness in the United States exposed through cell phone videos of police and vigilante violence, institutionalized through forms of police impunity and racialized mass incarceration, and manifested in the streets as tear gas, flashbang grenades, and police tanks. Challenging racism in the United States is a radical act, one that cannot simply rest on reforming the individual psychology of bigotry, prejudice, or even implicit bias. To truly change and challenge racism, as Black Lives Matter and the abolitionist movements do, one must go to the root of our history. Thus, it is no accident that in mid-June, the protests against police violence reignited the long fight against icons and monuments to the country's openly white supremacist past. Beginning in Minnesota, while the protests over the Floyd killing continued in Minneapolis, members of several Native nations gathered across the river in St. Paul to pull down a statue of Christopher Columbus on the state capitol grounds. 
While this particular felling of a statue had been years in the making, this richly symbolic and indeed ceremonial act quickly widened into a wave of attacks on public monuments celebrating enslavers, colonists, and Confederates across the country. Now, this fight over flags and monuments is, of course, nothing new. It is worth recalling how on June 27, 2017, an activist by the name of Bree Newsom climbed a flagpole 10 days after the massacre of nine black parishioners at the Emanuel AME Church by a white supremacist in Charleston, South Carolina. Bree Newsom climbed the flagpole and tore the Confederate battle flag down from the, the State House grounds in South Carolina a crime for which she was immediately arrested, and the flag was immediately restored to its place. But guided by this moral act of civil disobedience, the state eventually followed suit permanently, took the flag down, and changed its, its state flag. You see, I know my history and my heritage, uh, Bree Newsom told the press. The Confederacy is neither the only legacy of the South nor an admirable one. The Southern heritage I embrace is the legacy of a people unbowed by racial oppression. Now, also recall how the torchlit parades and street battles around the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, also that same summer on August 13, 2017, not only led to the murder of anti-fascist activist Heather Hare, but it led to Donald Trump's famous line. Let's see if I can get him to say it. You know what? He doesn't want to say it, which is fine. We don't need him to say it. I'll say it. He said, there were very fine people on both sides, people in that group that were there to protest the taking down to them of a very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. He continued, George Washington was a slave owner. Are we going to take down statues of George Washington? What about Thomas Jefferson? Are we going to take down his statues too? You are changing history, changing culture. Now, this moment in which Donald Trump basically said that the men and women standing next to Nazis and Klansmen were, in fact, very fine people who were really only there to be concerned about a statue and a park, um, it is, was, in fact, one of the most shocking and jarring moments, I think, of the Trump presidency. And the one, in fact, that Joe Biden cites as the reason why he had to run for president. Trump's role as the bodyguard of Western civilization reappeared this summer on June 22nd when protesters in Lafayette Square across the street from the White House attempted and failed to pull down the 168-year-old equestrian statue of Andrew Jackson, the nation's seventh president, a slave owner, and architect of the genocidal policies towards Native nations in the Southeast. Trump demanded that each and every one of those arrested on that day serve at least 10 years in prison for attacking this statue. From that point on, Trump's counterinsurgency culture war began, blending, like his hero Jackson, both anti-blackness and settler colonialism into a renewed version of the culture wars. On July 4th, Donald Trump gave a speech at the foot of Mount Rushmore in South Dakota, promising, quote, this monument will never be desecrated and that Mount Rushmore will stand forever as an eternal tribute to our forefathers. Now, the enemies of this eternal American greatness, argues Trump, are the intellectuals, those who control the mobs in the streets and indoctrinate your children. Quote, our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. 
This left-wing cultural revolution, explained Trump, is designed to overthrow the American revolution. Now, it is important to add to this, I think, uh, that Trump has now proposed a new monument to the Garden of American Heroes, but that came only after he inquired with the governor of South Dakota about what the formal process is to have his face added to the four presidents on Mount Rushmore. So we can see where his priorities are. Now, deep into September, Donald Trump is trailing in the polls and by recent accounts running out of money. And yet, in this moment, Trump has escalated his attacks on intellectuals, threatening to ban the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 Project published by the New York Times uh, last summer, and what he calls critical race theory, claiming, quote, we grew up with a certain history, and now we're trying to change our history. Now, I should add that this right-wing attack on critical race theory, um, you know, is basically, you know, these are, they, they, they simply don't know what critical race theory is. They, all they know is that these are three words that they don't like, and they, they like them even less when written in that sequence. Critical race theory is really a body of intellectual uh, endeavor created out of legal thinkers uh, like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and others who tried to push for new understandings about law in particular, about how race intersects with the law. It was an early attempt to try and think about uh, intersectionality when it comes to uh, legal prejudice and the legal systems. So when these folks talk about banning critical race theory, um, they they really don't necessarily, they, they basically think about people who are critical, people who talk about race and people who use sophisticated forms of theory, not whatever those things mean together. And I would add to look at this kind of upper, uh, tweet here that Donald Trump suggested, the language here, I think, should chill us, in which he says that defines critical race theory as, quote, a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. Please report any sightings so that we can quickly extinguish. This kind of exterminationist language is exceptionally dangerous. Now, these kinds of calls for, you know, or accusations of revisionist history are something that is always very much in the eye of the beholder. Historians like to joke that the first revisionist history was in fact Herodotus, the 5th century BC Greek chronicler, considered the father of written history itself, who set to pull Greek history out of mythology and into the realm of empirical documentary study. All history is revisionist history to one degree or another, in that historians are always reading and reviewing each other's work, seeking to refine their interpretations, researching through archival evidence, and expanding their inquiries into previously unexplored arenas of history. Historians are always already revising our understandings of the past. The final word on any historical question never arrives. Representations of our history are always contested. Changing is not just um, changing, not just with the uncovering of new forms of evidence, but with the changing ethical and yes, political needs of the present day. History must serve the needs of the present, right? It doesn't give you the. It doesn't mean that writing history is a fi- is the process of writing fiction, but it does say that it is a contingent process. That writing history is often and necessarily done with the needs of the present in mind. It is this struggle over the past that leads the powerful, here primarily the state, to seek to fix historical meanings through stone and bronze statuary placed on pedestals in public parks and civic arenas. To erect statues dedicated to the long-defeated Confederacy in the 20th century is not designed to educate the public 
about the heroism of Robert E. Lee, but to fix black people in their subordinate place in this country. Confederate monuments, Barbara Fields might jump to tell us, creates the day-to-day ideology of race, where in the memory of pro-slavery traitors and military losers are more venerated than the possibility of black freedom. And we can see in this chart that was produced a number of years ago, where do all the Confederate monuments come from? There are a, a truly staggering number of Confederate monuments across the United States. Where do they all come from? Were they in fact made in the years after the Civil War to in fact commemorate those that died in the cause of fighting for the Confederacy? Well, this chart that you see here shows conclusively the answer to that was no. The overwhelming majority of Confederate monuments were built in the United States in the 20th century, particularly in the early Jim Crow era that begins in the late 19th century and lasts until the 1960s. We see in this chart an enormous growth here in the early 20th century, particularly 1910 to 1919, in which the majority of Confederate statues were built in American cities. And then once again, in the 1960s, in the face of cities and counties and states building Confederate monuments in the face of the civil rights movement, right? This is an attempt of the state to fix the meaning of the past. So then to tear down these statues or to assert a different founding date for our history is to challenge that fixed history of the past and to begin to draft a new narrative. So in the spirit of that unfixed past, out of the urgency of a new generation seeking justice, and with the help of two generations of American historical scholarship, let us look at our nation's origin, at its founding documents, and put black life at the center of the, cre- the creation of this nation. W.B. Du Bois, as always, the intellectual giant of the 20th century, put it best for all of us. In Souls of Black Folk, again, in 1903, he writes, quote, Merely a concrete test of the underlying principles of the great republic is the Negro problem. Merely, right? Merely a a test of the underlying principles of the great republic, right? The problem of black people in America is the problem, right? The, The question of how democratic truly is the United States. Or in the words of Hannah Nicole Jones, Uh, excuse me, Nicole Hannah-Jones, my apologies. (laughs) Sorry, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author and editor of the 1619 Project, quote, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. And I think it is this sensibility that is exactly why Donald Trump can, on the one hand, rail against cancel culture and then demand that the 1619 Project be censored or banned in American public schools. Uh, Nicole uh, uh, Hannah-Jones continues, quote, um, in August 1619, just 12 years after the English settled in Jamestown, Virginia, one year before the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock, and some 157 years before the English colonists even decided they wanted to form their own country, the Jamestown colonists bought 20 to 30 enslaved Africans from English pirates. The pirates had stolen them from a Portuguese slave ship that had forcibly taken them from what is the country, now the country of Angola. These men and women who came ashore on that August day were the beginning of American slavery. And in her sense, it is the beginning then of the great contradiction that lies at the heart of American nationalism and American politics. 
Now, of course, American slavery or slavery in the English colonies that will become the United States was but a small part of the vast transatlantic slave trade initially begun by Christopher Columbus himself and perpetuated until late into the 19th century, a trade in human flesh that transformed the demographics of the entire world and established the economic systems that continue to govern us. So this gives you a sense, this map here of the slave trade and its, its duration from 1500 uh, to 1870 shows you that both where uh, enslaved peoples were taken from Africa and to where in volume they were imported to. You can see from this quite explicitly that in fact, the British colonies of North America were a small outpost in terms of the massive uh, transfer of people, forced migration across the Atlantic Ocean. The vast majority of Africans kidnapped in their homelands, force marched to the shores, placed in the cargo holds of slave ships, forced to endure the middle passage across the Atlantic, sold into marketplaces in uh, capital cities and distributed across the, the, the capitalist agriculture of the plantation system, the vast majority of these enslaved people ended up in Brazil and then in the sugar islands of the Caribbean. Uh, the North America was by and large a sideshow. And indeed here, to boil this immense human drama and tragedy um, down to a set of numbers. So let me just give you this, that between 1502 and 1808, 12.4 million people, in African people, endured the Middle Passage, were shipped across the Atlantic in the cargo holds of boats. 12.4 million. 1.8 million of those died during the Middle Passage. 1.8 million Africans died after their capture in Africa. And as the slave trade went on for century after century, uh, enslavers had to move farther and farther into the interior to capture people. And if you're, you're often hundreds of miles into the West African interior, those people then have to be chained into a coffin and marched then to the shore where they can be placed in the holds of, of slave ships. Slave ships in this case functioning both as vehicles of war as prisons, and eventually then as factories that transform Africans into enslaved peoples. So 10.6 million people were then sold into slavery in the New World, 40% of whom arrived in Brazil, 18% of whom arrived in the British Sugar Islands, the most important being, of course, Jamaica, 17% arrived in the Spanish Empire, and 14% to the French Empire. And it's the jewel of the Antilles, the wealthiest colony in the history of slavery, that of San Domingue, which will eventually become the first black nation in the world following the Haitian Revolution of the early 20th century. Oh, excuse me, the early 19th century. Only 6.5% of the total number of slaves shipped across the Atlantic arrived in British North America. Between 1700 and 1808, two-thirds of the total number of slaves were shipped. Between 50 and 60,000 people a year between 1500 and 1850. Now again, 40% or 3 million people were shipped in English or American ships. 70% of that cargo, uh, of that sold their cargo to the British Sugar Islands. Only 10% went to North America. And this, I think, is the stunning fact. Until 1820, with the start of mass European, particularly German, Irish, and English immigration to the United States, or what will become the United States, 
until 1820, five times as many Africans crossed the Atlantic as Europeans. Five times. This is, I think, should uh, give all of us pause. Again, in the words of W.B. Du Bois, quote, the most magnificent drama of the last thousand years of human history, the transportation of 10 million human beings out of the dark beauty of their mother continent into the newfound El Dorado of the West. They descended into hell. Now, between the importation of slaves and the construction of vast sugar plantations on what was once the indigenous commons of the new world, we can locate the origins of capitalism in the Atlantic world. We find in this the seeds of managerial theory, the source of most forms of accountancy, insurance, and finance capital, as well as the emergence of a political class of the new world. What you're looking at here is the architectural plan of the British slave ship Brooks. And this was generated for insurance purposes to an attempt to sort of map out exactly how many enslaved people can be kept on these, these, these ships. And then the purpose of this was then appropriated by anti-slavery forces and used as an icon to oppose the slave trade. It should be noted that many people had different political positions on slavery. Someone like Thomas Jefferson himself, very much pro-slavery in that he owned over the course of his lifetime more than 600 individual slaves. But he was opposed to the slave trade, which he considered um, quite inhumane. So there's lots of different positions that one could hold in this. But what you're looking at here, right, is an image that, right, that, that speaks to the, 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 the simple fact that the American insurance industry and most versions of finance capital in the United States were actually built out of and through the institution of slavery. Um, again, Du Bois, black labor became the foundation stone not only for the Southern social structure, but of Northern manufacturing and commerce, of the English factory system, of European commerce, of buying and selling on a worldwide scale. New cities were built on the results of black labor and a new labor problem involving all white labor arose both in Europe and in America. Um, What you see here is the set of labor relations established on a slave plantation on the island of Antigua in 1823. You see black men and women and children working equally in the sugarcane plant uh, and sugarcane fields, followed here by an overseer carrying a stick talking to what is probably uh, a section boss or um, uh, a white uh, plantation owner wearing a hat, uh, sitting on a horse, supervising the labor here. So what you see here is not just the work being done, but the social relations created by slavery itself. Now, in 1790, there were more than 80,000 households in what would become the United States that had slaves in nearly every state. That amounted to nearly 15% of the colonial population. 15% of the American population in 1790 were enslaved. In this era, slavery was legal in every state save Massachusetts. In South Carolina, nearly one in three households owned slaves, but the majority of them would only own one or two. It was very rare, very small were the numbers of the big planters, the Washingtons, the Jeffersons, the Madisons, the Calhouns, right? These were small. On the verge of the U.S. Civil War in 1860, less than 7% of the Southern population owned more than 3 million of the calculated 3,953,000 
696 enslaved peoples in the southern states. But it was the wealth generated by these large plantations, especially the richest of the North American colonies, uh, particularly the tobacco-growing colony of Virginia, that the United States built its first revolutionary ruling class. And for this, then, we want to turn to the analysis of Barbara Fields and her extraordinary essay on race, ideology, and slavery in the United States of America. Barbara Fields begins the, art of the essay, her argument, by reminding us of something very important. Well, she begins in a number of places, but the, let's start with this one, which is to say that slavery began not as a system of racial oppression, but as a system of labor, a way of organizing and orchestrating and managing colonial labor systems. With the collapse across the New World of 95%, of the indigenous peoples of the New World, 95%, the, the eradication of the indigenous peoples of the New World, it left an enormous uh, need for labor. Enslaving Indians could only last for so long um, because they could either run away or they were so susceptible to massacres, to genocide, and, Euro and European broad diseases. The importation of Africans then to work on these plantations served the needs of labor in the colonies. And as uh, Barbara Fields write, quote, Virginia was a profit-seeking venture, and no one stood to make a profit growing tobacco by democratic methods. Indeed, she continues, probably a majority of American historians think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relations, as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco. Now, I think this is, in many regards, a difficult thing for people to get their, wrap their heads around. We do tend to think about slavery as a system of racial oppression, and it is. But as a historian, Barbara Fields takes it upon herself to explain how that system arose, how a, fundamentally, a fundamental labor system based on dispossessed and dislocated workers becomes an ideology of racial superiority and inferiority. What Barbara Fields insists, and this is something that we all need to insist, which is to say, race is not real. There is no biological or genetic foundation that we can find that will establish the distinctions between black people and white people. Race, as the physical differentiations between people with different skin, eye, skin color, eye shape, hair texture, and the like, has no biological foundation, particularly no biological foundation other than the superficial features of how close to the equator do your ancestors come from. The insistence on things like moral superiority, beauty, ethical considerations, the capacity for athleticism, physicality, intelligence, and most importantly, criminality and self-governance are all parts of what comes to be understood through the lens of Barbara Fields as racial ideology. The idea that, right, we all of us are equal members of the human race. We share all of its common faculties and, you know, looking at the darkening skies, we will all indeed share a common destiny. But racial ideology separates us out into what are imagined to be biologically discrete groupings. 
Barbara Fields insists then that race is not an explanation, right? Black people are not enslaved because of their race, but that in fact, the enslavement of black people comes to explain where the category of race itself comes from. Race does not explain anything. Race must be explained. And this, I think, is really the, 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 the superior power of what a historian and a historical approach to slavery can provide. Indeed, Barbara Fields goes further. American racial ideology is as original invention of the founders as is the United States itself. Those holding liberty to be inalienable and holding Afro-Americans as slaves were bound to end by holding race to be a self-evident truth. And I give you this, this was the, 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 the opening image. This is, of course, John Trumbull's painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. You can see it in the Yale University Art Gallery. But then a man on Twitter, Arlen Parsa, remade this by putting white, uh, red dots over the faces of the 34 out of 47 men depicted in this painting who, in fact, own slaves. These are, as a professor of mine in my old college days like to say, America's favorite slaveholding philosophers of freedom. And how does that function? How do you have men utterly dedicated to the belief in human freedom and still hold men and women in bondage, in hopeless, eternal bondage, bondage that is passed down through the mother so that children are enslaved from generation to generation, a form of enslavement so total, so alienating, so debasing that black folks were not in fact human, they were property that could be bought and sold and mortgaged, right? And raped and beaten and murdered with impunity. The scale of deprivation uh, that, uh, that sla- New World slaves experienced was utterly profound. And in this juxtaposition, in this contradiction between a political system dedicated to human liberty and freedom and an economic system dedicated to mass enslavement is the founding contradiction of the American nation. Now, Fields goes on to call this an ideology, and she defines an ideology in these terms. Quote, Ideology is best understood as the descriptive vocabulary of day-to-day existence, through which people make rough sense of the social reality that they live and create from day-to-day. It is the language of consciousness that suits the particular way in which people deal with their fellows. It is the interpretation in thought of the social relations through which they constantly create and recreate their collective being. As such, ideologies are not delusions, but real as real as the social relations for which they stand. And so in this, I think Barbara Fields offers us a compelling understanding of ideology that goes beyond a kind of political movement holding a sign to actually being the stories we tell ourselves to explain how the world works. We look at the social relations that shape our world and we explain them to ourselves. We say, okay, this is natural. This is right. This is just. This is how things are. This is where they're supposed to be. It is what it is. I think there may, in fact, be no greater statement of ideology or evocation of ideology than that phrase. It is what it is, right? And so it is a capacity to explain the social reality that surrounds us, that provides for us ideology. 
In that sense, then, ideology is not a choice. It is, right, the intellectual structure around us. It is the water to us as fish, right? The idea that we can live without ideology, in a sense, is presented as an impossibility. It is the the way in which we make rough sense of our day-to-day social reality. And if that reality, as you see here in this painting, um, that you can find at Monticello, uh, George Washington's monument, this is an expression of ideology. George Washington, his children playing in the foreground, talks to one of his, uh, his overseers, why African people, his enslaved property in the background, go about their day. The white people do no work. The Africans in the background, the enslaved people do all of the work. This is natural. This is what it should be. This is how reality, uh, this is dictated to us by nature. Now, the crisis that leads to the formation of American racial ideology comes in the form of the Declaration of Independence in Barbara Field's understanding. And we all know, or at least we should know, and if you don't, you'll hear me state them, the famous opening lines of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, wrote Thomas Jefferson, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Now, this phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, is the kind of foundation stone, the lodestone of the fundamental American contradiction. And this contradiction, right, is presented in the sense that how could a man like Thomas Jefferson, a radical intellectual of the European and North American Enlightenment, one of the most fervent believers in universal human equality could himself own in so many slaves and treat them in the way that he did. And which should be added, right, of course, that in this language of all men are created equal, Jefferson, is, this is not the universal men. He means men. There is no indication whatsoever that women are to be included in this system at all, let alone black folks, let alone natives all of whom are systematically, right, held outside the bounds of what is considered men. So how do you square the circle of a a, a radical universal human equality while holding 15% of the colonial population in, in endless bondage? Well, the enslaved, quite simply, are not men. They are less than human. They are lesser humans. They are not entitled nor capable of carrying those basic fundamental rights and obligations of citizenship and manhood. That's how you square the circle. You create the biological category of race so as to justify the superiority of whites and imagine the inferiority of African enslaved peoples. We see this at work in Thomas Jefferson's chapter from Notes in the State of Virginia, 1781. And he writes... A fundamental question. He's asked and he responds by saying, can black people and white people be subjected to the same laws? His answer in Notes on the State of Virginia, his only published book in his lifetime, was no, white people and black people cannot be governed by the same laws. And he goes on to explain in the following, deep-rooted prejudices, 
entertained by the whites, 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained, new provocations, the real distinctions which nature has made, and many other circumstances will divide us into parties and produce convulsions, which will probably never end but in the extermination of one race or the other. So he's already clear that white people have committed such grievous crimes against the black, po- the black population that it will be impossible for them to share the same nation, to share the same um, um, governance. And indeed, to this effect, uh, Thomas Jefferson did believe that, that uh, slavery would one day end, and it became his mission to ship black people back to Africa in what was known as colon- the, col- uh, the, uh, the colonizing project, to, ship, to, ta- to emancipate slaves and send them back to Africa because they can't stay here. Now, he then continues in the notes on the state of Virginia. He says, to these objections, which are political, may be, may be added others which are physical and moral. And this is the moment, right, in which Thomas Jefferson is making race real. He writes, the first difference which strikes us is that of color. Whether the black of the Negro resides in the reticular membrane between the skin and scarf skin, or in the scarf skin itself, whether it proceeds from the color of the blood, the color of the bile, or from some other secretion, the difference is fixed in nature and is as real as if its seat and cause were better known to us. This is Thomas Jefferson right, searching for why black people and white people must be treated unequally, and he begins that explanation with vivisection, with cutting open black skin to determine on what layer does the blackness actually reside. Where biologically, is it in the blood, is it in the bile, is it in the skin, where biologically does this race, racial difference exist? But he doesn't quite know, but he is sure that it is fixed in nature. And it is this difference, he continues, and is this difference of no importance? It is, it, is it not the foundation of a greater or less share of beauty in the two races? Are not the fine mixtures of red and white, the expression of every passion by greater or less diffusion of color in the one, preferable to that of eternal monotony, which reigns in the countenances, that immovable veil of black, which covers all of the emotions of the other race? He is literally saying here that white people are more beautiful, thereby they are worthy. They are more important. They are more intelligent. This combination of aesthetics and racial attribution then becomes the source of a racial hierarchy. Now, I will continue with a lot of this discussion next week, and we're going to focus much more on this question of to where race comes from, what we mean when we're talking about race. But here, right, Jefferson is attempting to fix this. And this understanding that, right, here it is, white supremacy, in the sense that the belief that white people are emotionally superior because they can blush, whereas black people, right, dwell in this kind of eternal darkness because he can't read their faces for their emotion, right? This is Jefferson making race biological. He continues, I advance it, therefore, as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, are inferior to the whites in the endowment both of body and mind. It is not against experience to suppose that different species of the same genus or varieties of the same species may possess different qualifications. 
Will not a lover of natural history then, one who views the gradations of all the races of animals with the eye of philosophy, excuse an effort to keep those in the department of man as distinct as nature has formed them? This unfortunate difference of color and perhaps of faculty is a powerful obstacle to the emancipation of these people. The basic belief, right, that black people cannot be freed because they are simply inferior and incapable of self-governance. This is Thomas Jefferson's point of view. The desire, however, in his part to keep black, the black and white races separate was something he preached but did not practice. And as we know uh, from in recent history, Thomas Jefferson, after the death of his first wife, took the half-sister of his own wife as concubine. The 14-year-old Sally Hemings became Thomas Jefferson's um, enslaved um, you know, uh, concubine. Is the, it's a horribly uncomfortable term, but there it, that's the one that was offered. While in Paris... Thomas Jefferson brought with him a 14-year-old girl by the name of Sally Hemings. When his wife had died, the 44-year-old Thomas Jefferson began a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old black girl who was, in fact, his wife's um, half-niece. This was widely known at the time, and Thomas Jefferson indeed would go on to have six children with Sally Hemings, four of whom uh, survived to adulthood, two of whom would be allowed to escape, but not after being enslaved on his own plantation uh, for decades. Thomas Jefferson quite literally enslaved his own children. And we see this here in a cartoon attributed to James Aiken from 1804, in which Thomas Jefferson is depicted here with his concubine, Sally Hemings, or I think perhaps more powerfully by the contemporary artist Titus Gaffar in a painting entitled Behind the Myth of Benevolence, in which a a portrait of Thomas Jefferson appears to be unveiling a a secondary portrait, a layered portrait um, of a presumably unclothed uh, African-American woman. And so we see in this the personal paradox, the contradictions, not just on a political level, but on a personal level, that shape American politics. Indeed, Barbara Fields continues, racial ideology in its racial American form is the ideology to be expected in a society in which enslavement stands as an exception to the radically defined liberty so commonplace that no great effort of imagination is required to take it for granted. It is an ideology proper to a free society in which the enslaved descendants of Africans are an anomalous exception. There is no paradox. It makes good common sense. Now, she goes on to explain that in fact, right, I think what Barbara Fields is arguing broadly is to say that the category of race is the child of racism and not the father. Now, that's Ta-Nehisi Coates' paraphrasing of Barbara Fields, right? That race is the child of racism, not the father. And Fields then explains, right, that it was not Afro-Americans, furthermore, who needed a racial explanation. It was not they who invented themselves as a race. Euro-Americans resolved the contradiction between slavery and freedom, slavery and liberty, excuse me, by defining Afro-Americans as a race. Afro-Americans resolved the contradiction more straightforwardly by calling for the abolition of slavery. And this indeed, then, is where we can turn to the most ferocious rebuttal to uh, the, the crisis of slavery in the United States, namely Frederick Douglass's Jeremiah, given on July 5th, 1851, an immortal speech, arguably the most important political speech I think that I have ever read, entitled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? 
He was invited to give a speech uh, to an assembled crowd. Uh, you see here in Massachusetts, an anti-slavery gathering on the 4th of July, to which he says, quote, what have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of national justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. Do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak this day? He continues, quote, what to these American slave is the 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all the other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Now, if that doesn't shake your bones, I don't know what will. Frederick Douglass was born on a slave plantation in uh, Maryland. He eventually uh, self-emancipated, uh, meaning he escaped from slavery and would go on to become the great anti-slavery crusader and my vote for maybe the greatest American of all time. Um, he writes in his uh, second autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, resolving uh, Barbara Fields and Thomas Jefferson's paradox as he writes, quote, it was not color but crime, not God but man that afforded the true explanation of the existence of slavery. Nor was I long in finding out another important truth, viz. that what man can make, man can unmake, right? And this is my favorite photograph. Uh, Frederick Douglass is probably the most photographed black man um, of the 19th century. He loved to have himself photographed and represented in these ways. And this is my favorite photograph of him, furrow-browed, perfect part, uh, you know, a, a stern, angry, serious look on, upon his face, right? that the contradictions that shape this country are uh, in fact, right, created not by nature, but by the founders of this country. And to jump back then, right, the Declaration of Independence leads, right, quite, and the contradictions embodied within it leads quite directly to the establishment of the United States Constitution in 1787. The famous preamble, right, explains that the, we, with the, the, the language of we, the people of the United States, a phrase, again, in 1787, that was never intended to include women, black folks, uh, enslaved peoples, Native Americans, immigrants from other countries, and the like. Um, but of course, we understand this as our founding text. This is where the American nation comes from. And so, what we want to look, what I want to spend the next 10 minutes or so talking about is the question of where does slavery itself as an institution appear in the U.S. Constitution? Now, it arises, it appears in basically three places. Now, there are others, uh, but it, it arises essentially in three places. And I want to take them sort of backwards. 
The first uh, that I want to consider is the fugitive slave clause. The second would be the preservation of the slave trade. And then the third and most important is what we know as the three-fifths clause. The United States Constitution set the, uh, 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 they said that the, the international slave trade, now keep in mind, listen, listen to the euphemism here, ending the slave trade. The migration of importation of such persons as any state now existing shall think proper to admit. The Constitution never uses the word slavery until the 13th Amendment. The word slavery never appears, right? This is a euphemism for enslaved peoples. But the Constitution, the Constitutional Congress, as it assembled in the summer of 1787, right, um, understood quite explicitly that slavery was an existential threat to this new document, to this new union. And that if they addressed the question of slavery, if they named the question of slavery, the Constitution would never be written, would never be ratified, and the country would really, in effect, never come together. So slavery was euphemized, it was delayed, it was put off, it was denied, it was ignored, but yet still written into the very heart of the document itself. And so while the slave trade was ended, scheduled to end, it also was protected for more than 17 years before abolition could be be brought about. So did the Constitution end the slave trade or did it protect and defend it for 17 years? Further, the next clause, the Fugitive Slave Clause, which insists that, right, as it says here, um, uh, no person held to service or labor in one state, again, meaning enslaved peoples, under the laws thereof, escaping unto another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service, blah, 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 blah. What that means is there are no free states. That an enslaved person who flees Georgia and arrives in Massachusetts, it is the obligation of Massachusetts to return that enslaved person. That there are no free states. That this is a slave country, a slave society, right? In which there is no place in the United States where enslaved people can run to become free. Of course, the most pernicious of the um, uh, elements of the Constitution uh, in which slavery is written in is the three-fifths clause. Pioneered and proposed by James Madison, the Virginia planter and slave owner himself, who recognized that some kind of compromise would be necessary, not between the big states and the small states, as it is often understood, but as James Madison himself understood, between the northern free states and the southern slave states, that the question of political representation would necessarily then arise. And the compromise between big states and small states was resolved in the form of the United States Senate, in which every state would receive two senators, no matter how big and, no, and how small. And the United States House of Representatives would apportion representation, and, and here uh, to read from the clause, and direct taxes shall be apportioned upon the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. Those three-fifths of all other persons are the enslaved. Now, the northern states did not want the South to be able to claim enslaved people as part of their... um, representation, right? To have the, because these, these folks aren't citizens, they can't vote, 
right? So why would you include them in the, 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 the census basis for representation? Of course, James Madison and the Southerners wanted the enslaved peoples be included as is whole numbers, so as to maximize the representational power of the Southern states. James Madison and the Three-Fifths Clause then offers the kind of compromise that allows enslaved peoples to count as a fraction for purposes of representation. And so what you have then is a set of institutions written into the United States Constitution that are designed explicitly to favor the slave states and to preserve, protect, and defend the institution of slavery in the United States Constitution. The most dramatic of these, in my opinion, is the existence of the United States Senate itself, in which every state receives two senators. Now, the House of Representatives at the Three-Fifths Clause already has a problem with representation. We'll come to that in a moment. But the United States Senate is radically undemocratic. Looking here, what you see is, right, big states and small states. 62 senators represent about one-fourth of the people in the United States, so do these six senators from just three states. In Alaska, there is a senator for every 370,000 citizens. In Wyoming, there is a senator for every 290,000 citizens, whereas in California, there is a senator for every 19,500,000 senators, in Texas for every 14 million citizens, and in New York for every 9,790,000 citizens. I will remind you, Alameda County, where I currently reside, have a, has a population of about 1.6 million people. Los Angeles County has a population of over 10 million people. Yet both of the Dakotas combined with their four senators have fewer people in them than Alameda County. Four senators to the two Dakotas, Alameda County gets two Congress people. The United States Senate is radically undemocratic, and it was designed to be by the slaveholders who wrote the Constitution determined to retain their political power. You throw into that equally, right, um, uh, unjust legal, you know, uh, rules like um, the filibuster, and you have a mechanism for radical versions of minoritarian rule. Yet another example. There are 43 states with a total population of 86 senators that have a smaller population than Los Angeles County itself. I would give you beyond this, um, I remind you of this, that when Donald Trump faced impeachment, do you remember that? Do you remember when they impeached Donald Trump? Like, you re- I, I mean, it seems like eons ago. Does it have any bearing on our election? Anyways, Trump uh, put this on Twitter, try to impeach this, as if he were elected not by votes, but by square acreage. Now, Trump's impeachment um, was one of those vehicles in the United States Senate that given the enormously high bar to impeachment, Donald Trump, in in effect, only needed 7% of the nation's population to remain in power. He needed 34 votes or the senators from 17 states totaling as little as 7% of the population that could have kept Trump in power, meaning that 24 million Americans could thwart the political will of 302 million Americans. So while the, the right in general is very concerned with things like the tyranny of the majority, what we in fact have in the United States of America is the tyranny of a minority.
of a small populations of the small states can dominate the United States government through the undemocratic mechanisms of the United States Senate. And then we can get to the Electoral College, everybody's favorite Electoral College. When the Constitutional Convention dragged on into the summer of 1787, the delegates circled back to one of their thorniest questions, including how the country would select its president. Now, in the words of Alexander, uh, excuse me, historian Alexander Kesar, in this giant book that I read over the weekend, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? He writes that the Electoral College was, quote, a consensus second choice for the Constitutional Convention, which was split between the desire for a national popular vote and the election to the president, uh, the election of the president by state legislatures. They chose to favor a compromise. What Kesar describes as a temporary legislature, the Electoral College, that would come together, vote for the chief executive, and then disband once the work was complete. The right of suffrage, wrote James Madison in this debate, was much more diffuse in the northern than southern states, and the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of the Negroes. So James Madison is quite clear that if we have a national popular vote, the South will lose power, the South will not be able to maintain slavery should the North commit itself to an anti-slavery cause. So given the choice of assigning electors based on the three-fifths compromise over the possibility of a national popular vote or even proportional electors, the Electoral College similarly exaggerated the demographic power of the white South and created a constituency of slave states who now saw their political future enshrined and protected by the Electoral College. The Constitutional Congress thus openly rejected the question of a national popular vote. They relegated the authority over elections to the states and not to the federal government. They decided that elections would be largely indirect, with the Senate being appointed by state legislatures until 1917, and electors chosen to choose the president. So we don't vote directly for the president, we vote for the electors in the Electoral College. And most importantly, the constitutional authors knowingly and explicitly rejected the idea that all votes should be equal heavily favoring small states and slave states in the Electoral College. When added to the post-convention growth in political parties, something unaccounted for in the constitutional system, and the gradual adoption of the winner-take-all or general ticket system, the Constitutional co- the Electoral College excuse me, ran into a terminal crisis almost immediately. Indeed, in the third presidential election in 1800, where Thomas Jefferson would be elected president thanks to the 13 extra electoral votes granted to him by enslaved peoples according to the three-fifths clause. Thomas Jefferson's election was so contested and confusing, the Electoral College broke down completely, with the the election winding up in the House of Representatives, necessitating the Electoral College be reformed by the 12th Amendment a few years later. In time, there have been literally hundreds of attempts at reforming the Electoral College, first by ending the winner-take-all or general ticket system, and by apportioning, let me go back to this, and by apportioning state electors proportionally or by house district, as is currently done in Nebraska and in Maine. Today, there are consistent demands to, like every other country on earth, select the nation's chief executive through a simple national popular vote. Now, opposition to the national popular vote remains where it has always been, namely in the states of the former Confederacy, 
particularly during Jim Crow in the late 19th and early 20th century, in which black citizens were disenfranchised across the South, Southern states enjoyed an even larger advantage, what came to be known as the five-fifths advantage, in which black folks counted towards representation, but given that they could not vote, they were then represented by a vanishingly small members of the white electorate. So under Jim Crow and black disenfranchisement, Southern power grew even greater. The electoral college system created a world in which states are explicitly incentivized to restrict voting rights while preserving their relative electoral power. The Electoral College, wrote Senator James Allen of Alabama in 1969, is one of the South's few remaining political safeguards. Let us keep it. And there it remains, unloved, dysfunctional, yet ineradicable after 200 years of attempted reform, and in the end, responsible for establishing the political power of the slaveholding South across the 19th century. Now, we can see here, right, that the Electoral College, in four incidents at least, has created a situation in which the candidate that got the lesser number of votes became president anyways. In 2016, of course, as you will remember, but also again in 2000, in which George W. Bush lost the popular vote but became president uh, anyways because of the contested election in Florida, meaning that Al Gore literally lost the 2000 presidential count officially by 269 votes in Florida. Would you play a game? Would you watch the NBA finals? If by some mystery or play poker or blackjack, if by some mysterious quirk of the rules, you could have a winning hand or score more points than your enemy, your opponent, and still lose the game 7% of the time. Would you play? Would that game be considered fair? Indeed, we can see in this moment that Trump has an enormous, statistically verifiable electoral college advantage, particularly given, right, that each uh, vote, uh, that the electoral college creates this disproportionate representation, right? The, the 600, that, that each electoral vote represents 690,000 Californians and a mere 180,000 Wyomingans, right? Given that Wyoming is gro- grotesquely over um, uh, represented in the, uh, the, the electoral college. As Nate Silver demonstrated statistically in just this past week, and here's his tweet, he's calculated that Joe Biden must win the electoral college by at least two and a half to three points in order for this race to even be like even odds. If he wins by one point, he has a 6% chance of winning the electoral college. Keep in mind, Hillary won by 2.8% or 2%, 2.8 million votes. At 2%, Biden has a 22% chance of winning the presidency. At two to three point electoral, a, a, a mass popular vote, he has basically even odds. But at three to four point advantage in the uh, popular vote, he has a 74% or one in, one in three chance, or excuse me, um, uh, one in four chance. Um, but then when you get to a 5% spread, a 6% spread, or a 7% spread, Biden's chances of winning overall go up dramatically. So what you have here is a situation in which Donald Trump doesn't need to win a majority. He doesn't need to reach across the aisle. He doesn't even want to. He knows that he's not going to win the, 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 um, 
the, uh, um, the national popular vote. He's not going to get more votes than Biden. He is dependent on the Electoral College. And the possibility is quite real that Biden could win this election by anywhere from 5 to 12 million votes and still lose. Thanks, in fact, right, to the, the, the origins of our national state in slavery. Now, why do we, can't we get rid of the Electoral College? The simple answer is plain. It is nearly impossible to amend the United States Constitution. The barriers are enormous, right, as set out here um, in Article 5. In 1787, a mere four states with a population equaling less than 11% of the nation could prevent any constitutional amendment. Today, this issue is worse. 13 states with a combined population of less than 5% of the nation could thwart a constitutional amendment desired by 95% of the rest of the country. This is not the avoidance of the tyranny, tyranny of the majority. This is what minority rule looks like. As a result, Southern slave owners and slaveholders in the years between the signing of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, excuse me, and the, the coming of the Civil War, created the most powerful slave society in the history of the world. Indeed, Southern slave societies produced 10 of the first 12 presidents. 10 of the first 12 presidents owned slaves. Eight of them brought their enslaved property to work for them and serve them in the White House itself. And you can see their numbers here. Beyond that, 17 of the first 28 Supreme Court justices were Southern slaveholders. 14 of the first 19 attorney generals of the United States were Southern slaveholders, 21 of the first 33 speakers of the House, and 80 of the first 143 foreign ministers in the United States were slaveholders. Southern politics drove American expansion and Indian policy, pressing forward the Louisiana Purchase, the construction of the nation's capital between two slave states, Maryland and Virginia, the politics of Indian removal in the Southeast and Deep South, the annexation of Texas as a slave state and the Mexican War that followed, and adding in, the t- in that period nine new slave states between 1789 and 1861. And this is where I will end. I'm not going to get into the Civil War, and I've gone on for too long. But in 1860, by 1860, the verge of the United States Civil War, the United States South had produced the most powerful slave society in the history of the world. Slavery was by no means on the verge of collapse, on the verge of being abolished. The slave system in the United States was more powerful than it had ever been at any point in its history. In 1860, only 5% of the black people in North America were free. 95% of the African-American population in this country were enslaved. United States cotton production reached 1.6 billion pounds in that year meaning two-thirds of the global trade of the world's most valuable commodity. And this fed American and indeed English uh, industrialization. On the verge of the American Civil War, there were four million slaves in the United States. And the South had become, as I said, the most powerful slave society in the world. Of the 7,000 wealthiest families in the United States, those holding over $100,000 in wealth, 4,500 families were Southern planters. The top 1% of Southern income owners were twice as wealthy as the the similar demographic in the North. This to me is the most stunning figure I can afford you. By 1860, the economic value of property in the form of slaves 
amounted to more than the sum total of all the money invested in railroads, banks, and factories in the whole of the United States of America. Let me repeat that. In 1860, the economic value of property in the form of human slaves amounted to more than the sum total of all the money invested in railroads, banks, and factories in the United States. In the antebellum Texas, nearly 70% of the state's political leaders were drawn from the slaveholding class, which constituted less than a quarter of the total population. Two-thirds of all Southern state legislators were slave owners. Yet at the same time, four out of five Southerners owned no slaves at all. They farmed marginal land in subsistence fashion and commonly held little political connection to the slaveocracy who dominated Southern politics. Thus, in 1860, when the election of a new Republican, uh, Abraham Lincoln, committed not to ending slavery, but preventing its expansion into the West, when Abraham Lincoln was elected, a crisis broke out through the, the Southern aristocracy of the slaveholding class, and they determined that it was in their interests to preserve the slave system of the South that they would secede from the United States and wage war against the Union in the defense of slavery. So if you want to ask why did the United States fight the Civil War, well, ask, let's ask the Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. Quote, the Confederacy's foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. This, right, is the ideology of slavery and the inability to address it, to reform and transform the union because of the slaveholders' grip on the Constitution and our founding documents led some 70 years after the creation of this republic to a cataclysmic civil war that would, in the end, bring slavery to, the, to an end and give rebirth to a new nation in its, wages, in its wake. All right, I've gone on for too long. Let me just give you this. And I would like to, in the time we have left, to sort of solicit questions from anybody. Does, who's been paying attention to good questions that, that can be asked? Can I ask one of the GSIs to perhaps um, uh, call on someone to ask a question or... Most of the questions I have are from the USPS discussion. So maybe okay. raise hands. Um, okay, so um, there's one that is um, Sharika Jutsi. Yes, I know I just put your name. I, my apologies, uh, but go ahead, please ask your question. It's okay. It was pretty close. It's Sharika. Oh, very. Okay. Yeah. I get no points. Yeah, uh, Go ahead, please. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, my question was actually uh, about the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the United States government is set up very uniquely in that the Senate does represent e each state equally. And we did um, discuss at length today about how, you know, that sort of leads to a minority tyranny. But what I'm trying to understand is that, uh, firstly, wouldn't you argue that if the Senate were also to be based on a population basis, then a few states would sort of um, overpower the majority of the decision making in the country. And this is just like 
playing the devil's advocate because in India, where I'm from, the system is sort of set up like this, such that each state gets a representation by population in both houses of parliament. So I'm just trying to understand what the implications of that might be on the decision-making process in the United States um, Senate. And secondly, I just want to uh, wanted you to elaborate a little more on how the Electoral College is formed because I don't have much, I, I couldn't grasp the concept really. Um, so the, the first question about the United States Senate is that um, the Senate was designed to be unequal, to preserve the power of small slaveholding states with, little, with small population against the big states. Because the concern there was that the phrase that is often used in constitutional scholarship is that the Senate is the saucer that cools the hot tea of the House of Representatives. So if that's not a patrician metaphor, I don't know what is, but there, there you have it, right? The idea is that the Senate exists to prevent changes from happening as pushed by the House of Representatives. So the House of Representatives, actually democratically elected, is understood in, in immediate service of the the electorate, people who are elected every two years as opposed to appointed every six. Like keep in mind, the United States senators were appointed by state legislatures until 1917. So the, the idea that the United States Senate is deliberately anti-democratic, it is not supposed to be democratic. It is in fact designed as a check upon the democratic inclinations of the House of Representatives. Now, there are ways to think about, well, how do we reform the United States Senate? One of which would be to, eni- to eliminate the, the filibuster, which allows an even smaller uh, me- number of senators to put a block on any bill simply by threatening to uh, uh, refuse to close debate. And so you can have a situation in which a single senator can, in fact, hold up whatever legislation they wish, simply by threatening to filibuster. So one way would be to abolish the filibuster. The other would be to reform the United States Senate um, by adding states. D.C. statehood has been voted upon by the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, People are floating the notion of Puerto Rican statehood. Now, I happen to think that Puerto Rico, uh, rather than simply being become a state, uh, should be afforded the opportunity to vote on whether or not they want to become independent or whether or not they want to become a state. But by bringing Washington, D.C. in as a state, you could re-tip the balance that you would have then more urbanized states than rural states uh, within the presence of the United States Senate. But do I think the United States Senate can be made more democratic? No, it's not, it wasn't designed to be. Um, so there's, there's, I think, an inherent problem there. Now, for the Electoral College, how did it come to be? I mean, I think I, I tried to go over this, which is to say that it was, according to Alexander Kesar, um, a consensus second choice. No one could agree on whether or not um, the president should be appointed. Now, one thing that they all could agree on was no matter what method they chose to select the chief executive, it was going to be George Washington. <laughs> Right. He was going to be the first president, no matter what anybody wanted or voted for. That was just going to happen. So the question then was, was it going to be, were you going to be appointed, the president going to be appointed by state legislatures, or were you going to have a national popular vote? The southern slave states did not want a national popular vote because they, they, would, they would not, you know, they, they have a small population, right? The majority in places like South Carolina, there's actually more enslaved people in South Carolina than there were white people. Right. So they're, they're, they do not want a national popular vote because their power will be dramatically diminished. So this compromise, again, the three fifths compromise is what shapes uh, the Electoral College. So is the, the Electoral College was a system established to defend slavery 
and support and defend the political and augment the political power of the slaveholders who wrote the institution. The fact that we cannot get rid of it, despite the enormous desire and popular disdain, um, is one of, I think, the great failings of our democracy. Um, yeah, any, who's, who's next? Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Emerson? Hi. Um, so when you were discussing um, the um, sort of the amendments and how it's nearly impossible to add a new amendment to the Constitution, um, I was curious how difficult it really is and how that process works, because there are 27 amendments. So how were those made if it's nearly impossible? And it would it be possible someday to abolish the the Electoral College and Institute um, a national popular vote, or is that not a possibility? I mean, it is, I mean, the, the short, it is a possibility, right? I mean, anything... can I, sorry, yeah, can I speak to this? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Because I work with people uh, at an organization called National Popular Vote, who've been working on this issue and who've actually had a lot of success. They've gotten uh, at least a dozen states, maybe more at this point, to uh, sign on to a mutual agreement that if we reach a majority of electoral college votes, that they will all agree to just have their electoral college votes go towards the popular vote. Uh, it's, been, it's been something in the works for quite a while. And um, you could go to nationalpopularvote.org. They've been working on it and they've achieved a lot of bipartisan success amazingly. Yes, this is the, um, the national interstate, um, the national popular vote interstate compact that has been signed by state legislators. And the, the idea exactly is, as Professor Jai Raman says, uh, that, that so state legislatures are signing on saying that once, a, once 270 states totaling 270 electoral votes have signed on, that they will commit to grant that to, to legally require their electors to vote for whoever won the national popular vote. So in a sense, it's a kind of an end run around the constitutional and the constitutional uh, amendment process. Now, um, it is true that the constitution has been amended, um, but 15 times, right? 17 if you include the 18th and the 21st amendments, which negate each other. So you have prohibition and the repealing of prohibition, right? So that's not very many in a country that's you know, more than 200 years old. And you have to remember that the first 10, the Bill of Rights was entered in all at once. So this is a very, and these processes, I mean, it took decades for the women, the 19th amendment, which we celebrate the centenary of this year uh, to make it through um, so that, because it's not just two thirds of the state, the, the, the Congress, two thirds of the Senate, and then three quarters of the state legislators uh, of the states have to support it. Now in 1969, 1970, a supermajority of the House of Representatives voted to abolish the House of Re the, the Electoral College. And then when it made it to the United States Senate, it had a majority, but the bill that would have created an anti, uh, that would have abolished the Electoral College was filibustered by Southern segregationists, Strom Thurmond and others who filibustered it, preventing what was in 1970, the last probably best attempt to abolish the Electoral College. It is hard. The barrier is enormous. And, and, and many of you actually have lived uh, you know, depending on how, when you were born, have lived uh, an entire life in which there have been no constitutional amendments. 
right? I was alive for the last one in the 90s, <laughs> you know? And it was a stupid one, frankly, that just, it was about Congress people voting pay raises. I mean, it was, it's meaningless. Um, anyways, um, yeah, let's see. Okay, I'm gonna, here's another name for me to just utterly destroy and humiliate myself. Um, Obiama? Obiama. Uh, Obiama. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, you actually already answered the question. I appreciate it. Do you, you have another one? <laughs> um, I do, but it's just crazy. I've never heard of the national popular vote, and I just feel so ashamed of myself. So I'm going to like no, no, look, hey, figure no, it out. This is a no shame zone. We are all learning. No shame. No one is allowed, you know, like it, it, admitting to ignorance is the foundation for knowledge. Okay. That's so like, you are... <laughs> There are no prerequisites for this class. Like you know, everybody gets to come in with who they are, right? Like right, right. Okay, no yeah. Shame. So no I'll shame. rethink that question and come back. <laughs> right on. Okay, uh, Edith uh, Stalker. It's Ailey. Oh, God, I'm I'm over. <laughs> okay, sorry. My anyways, please. That's okay. Thank you. Um, I guess my question is just after hearing how slavery and like minority rule is built into the Constitution. How can we create a more equitable and democratic government using these same foundational documents? <laughs> that is an outstanding question. And let me like jump to the end of my lecture and this would be the place to end because I, I didn't get here, but like, that's okay. This is from Barack Obama's speech, A More Perfect Union, right? In which he writes, quote, and yet words on a parchment would not be enough to deliver slaves from bondage or provide men and women of every color and creed their full rights and obligations as citizens of the United States. What would be needed were Americans in successive generations who were willing to do their part through protest and struggle on the streets and in the courts, through a civil war and civil disobedience, and always at great risk to narrow the gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. I think this sums it up. I mean, and, and I put this in contest where, you know, where I began my part of the lecture, which is to say that power seeks to fix meaning. Trump is obsessed with the heroes of our founding, right? And, and to treat the founders as gods, as divine entities, as these transcendent heroic figures, rather than the bourgeois men that they were, slaveholding men that wrote a document that served their own specific economic interests. They were men creating a government born out of their own flaws as men and their interests as capitalists. So he wants to fix meaning in the past and suggest that these things cannot be changed. And in that, he's part of a tradition of, um, you know, originary, original intent of conservative legal thought that says we, the, the Constitution is not a living document. We must think about what the founders meant and build our interpretations on that fixed ancient 18th century meaning and a new, I think, vision in which we see the, pa the past, the history of this country as unmoored from these foundations, where historical knowledge can move and grow and expand. Our understanding of the past, our understanding of the political present can grow and expand. And we can indeed find new founders, find new founders, create a new origins for this nation. Now, my belief is that we did find that, we can find that in Reconstruction in the amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments that abolished slavery, instituted um, 
birthright citizenship and granted, in this case, African-American men the right to vote, made them citizens and enfranchised them. And in the collapse of slavery, in the end of the Civil War, do we find the second American Revolution, a new founding in which a new nation could be born out of equal protection under the law and the abolition of slavery. That is a hard question. That's the best. That's the best I got, folks. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your questions. Thank you to Professor Jayaraman for uh, her amazing uh, and important introduction. Um, I will. Uh, we will see you all on Monday. I will be back uh, to talk about race directly. What is race? What do we mean by race? Um, and the multi-faceted ways that we can think and talk about the, this question. Um, beyond the bounds, the specific bounds of slavery and the Constitution. So um, thank you all. Uh, stay safe, take care of each other, and uh, don't go out 